Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Lara Bloom, lives with a rare condition. It took many years for that diagnosis to be made, and it was, in the end, a clinician with a high index of suspicion who finally made the diagnosis. As she says, Doctors are taught in medical school, when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. That's why our logo is zebra, because we're asking people to think zebras. When you hear those hoofbeats, think outside the box. Our guest on the podcast today is Lara Bloom. Lara, you're very welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you today. And I want to start by getting the context in which we're having this conversation. You are the CEO and president of the Ehlers-Danlos Society. For those who may not be familiar with that condition, can you tell us a little bit about it, please? It's a pleasure to be chatting to you today. So yes, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, a a difficult uh, condition to pronounce and even harder to spell. But I was diagnosed with that condition when I was 24 years old after a 12-year diagnostic odyssey, which is very average actually for that condition and commonly seen actually throughout rare chronic invisible diseases. You tend to have this 10 to 12 year minimum really wait to find out the answers of what you're going through. And so my symptoms started when I was about 11 years old and like many kind of bounced from doctor to doctor, not really understanding why I was feeling everything I was feeling. When you go to a doctor, you usually present with one problem. When you're a teenager growing up and you present with a multi-systemic presentation of issues, the first thing that you're thought to be suffering from is anxiety or depression uh, or teenage angst. And that was what mine was put down to, coupled with the fact I came out as gay when I was older. So when I was 20, but those teenage years were, of course, in parallel going through that journey as well. And although I didn't verbally communicate that, I think doctors could tell that there was that going on. And so anything physical I presented with was, was seen to do with that and problems growing up with school and, and all of those things. So it was very frustrating. And to be honest, you when a doctor's telling you that there's nothing wrong and that those things are going on, you think, well, that must be the problem. And so I I kind of accepted it and it was really, really hard and it impacted me greatly growing up and made my quality of life physically much worse because I had surgeries I didn't need to have, multiple surgeries I, I shouldn't have had. And by the time I was finally diagnosed, I was deconditioned and struggling for, for answers. So that's what brought me up to the journey of, of Ella's Daniels entering into my life. And then in a way I could never have imagined it's become my career and I guess my life's calling. So that that's kind of how and why Ella's Daniels. We're hearing this repeatedly in podcast after podcast. There is a, as you call it, a diagnostic odyssey of some years before the penny finally drops and somebody says, aha, I think I know what this is. Then the diagnosis is made. For those who may not be familiar with this, what were those early symptoms? What what was it that was so confusing for the doctors? Ehlers-Danlos is a a genetic heritable connective tissue condition. 
So connective tissue, if you imagine, is in pretty much every single part of your body and all of your systems are powered by tissue. So for me, my symptoms were multi-systemic. They were across my body. Largely growing up, they were joint-based. So I fractured my wrists 27 times and was told I was accident prone. And I would do that by just opening a jar of mayo or tapping my wrist on a table or coming out of a cast and my wrist still being so weak, I would fall and it would fracture again. And often it was scars of fractures. And so they were never really truly sure, is it a new fracture, but let's put it in plaster anyway. And so you're just weakening and weakening the whole time until finally a surgeon looked at my scans and said, your issue is not the bones, but all of the tissues around it have almost disintegrated to nothing. And you've got no support in there. So we need to put in pin and we need to put in some pig gut <laughs> to do the job that your ligaments are not. And even at that point, no one questioned why that was in both my wrists. One, you think, okay, you know, that's, that's unusual, but what can you do? But to have it exactly the same in both wrists, it was just not questioned. So that was very frustrating. So I had both my wrists stabilized and, and had pins in them. Pre-diagnosis, I also had and have always had something called a pectus excavatum, which I have always called my soap dish or my dent in my chest, which is a physical attribute, actually, of a connective tissue condition. And that has given me issues with my breathing, chest pains. And again, I was just told, oh, that's just unlucky. And we see it quite often. And that will be why you're breathless. But it was not really then taken into account. Okay, well, is there a reason she may have lots of fractures and, you know, sprains and all these things that just kept happening? I had an elbow operated on, my knees operated on, my ankle operated on. It was always a ligament tear or a tendon tear or something wrong with the tissues. And it was never looked at as a bigger picture. It was always silos. You'd see an ankle specialist, you'd see a wrist specialist, you'd see a knee specialist. Then I had you know, IBS type symptoms and you'd see a, a GP and they would say, oh, it's anxiety. And my breathlessness was anxiety. And even though I had a physical, visible reason why I would be breathless, they would just still say, oh, yes, it could be that, but it's probably, you know, growing up and anxiety in your exams and, and everything else. So it was far ranging. It was, it was pain. It was tissue issues. It was breathlessness it was stomach pain it was when I was a little bit older endometriosis it was polycystic ovaries it was all these different issues and every time I had a problem it would take me a very very long time to heal and recover and again that was just put down to my metabolism my being slight and it was actually the fact that I was very thin and I had a very high cholesterol that I was sent to a dietitian to try and put on weight in a healthy way. And for the first time in my life, someone realized that there was something going on here that could explain everything. And she was the one that said, this is, I think, something genetic. And actually thought I had something called Marfan syndrome and referred me to a genetics Marfan clinic now, Marfan and EDS are both connective tissue conditions. And so I was at that point told, no, you don't have Marfan, but you have something called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. I'm just thinking, 
as a UK-trained general practitioner, I'm astonished that, I mean, I can understand why a surgeon might have missed it because they're only looking at that bit of you, but your family doctor would be looking at the whole picture. I, I just can't fathom how this was missed. Are you able to explain? I wish I could, and I wish I wasn't uh, a unusual story, but we see it time and time again. And it's often, unfortunately, at the primary care level that it is missed. And I think less than missed, it's that the doctors do not have the time or the budget to be able to give get scans that are needed. You know, so for example, if I, when you go to an A&E, every time I hurt my wrist, I was given an x-ray, which looks at the bones. And because they saw a fracture, it was never looked deeper than that. And it wasn't until I finally had a one that wasn't healing that I was sent to a, a surgeon, an expert, who scanned me instead of x-rayed me. So he was able to see all the tissues and then saw the problem. And so it's usually that, you know, they have, you have a five, 10 minute slot and you're able to present one problem. And so even then, although a, a primary care doctor has your medical history, they don't tend to look at it. You might find a shining star of a primary care doctor that actually says, you know what, this seems unusual. I will look at your past. I'll look at what's in front of me and I'll think about what it could be. But most don't have the capacity or the time to do it. So it was missed. And it was just that. It was someone finally saying, okay, well, I'm looking at you. I can see uh, some signs of hypermobility. So they obviously had seen it before. And I think that's the other thing. We're talking about something rare. When doctors are taught in medical school, when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. That's why our logo is zebra, because we're asking people to think zebras. When you hear those hoofbeats, think outside the box, think about what it might be. And she had obviously seen someone, I assume, because she thought about hypermobility, which is something you wouldn't automatically go to as a thought. And, and, and then just said, I've done a simple search online and this is what I think. So that's all it was, just her taking a little bit of time and the effort. And listen, we're living in a very different time to what we were when I was diagnosed. And I'd like to think things have improved and, and, and we see that it has. So more and more people are thinking of these conditions and it definitely is better. But we're far from the point where people are getting diagnosed when the symptoms begin. Tell us a little bit about the society and the patient community that you're now serving. I fell into this career. It certainly wasn't what I expected I would be doing. I was a photographer working at Getty Images. And when I was diagnosed a few years after that, I became very, very ill with something called POTS, postural tachycardia syndrome. And that basically means that whenever you stand up or sit up, your heart beat goes very, very fast and your blood pressure drops. And it's usually, it can just happen spontaneously, but mine and commonly seen followed a bad infection. So I just wasn't recovering and I finally got diagnosed and I actually spent almost a year in a wheelchair just from the debilitating autonomic symptoms. And I realized that I've got this condition. This was, I then suddenly had these autonomic problems, which I had never thought of or expected. And actually, when I was diagnosed with POTS, it was a new discovery within the EDS world. It correlated with EDS. And I was like, well, this is the first of what could be many different things that stop, stop me being able to stand up and take photos in a photo shoot for long periods of time, carry heavy equipment, 
I need to pick an office job. I need to pivot here. So I was 29 years old and wanted a career. I've always been very ambitious. And the only other thing I'd ever been interested in was kind of international relations, politics. And I had always wanted to be a spy. And I thought, well, you know, why not? I'm going to, I'm going to look into what I need to do to be a spy. And I actually interviewed for MI5, MI6, and did very well. And at the very end, I got to the very end stages of both interviews. And they said, listen, we're at a time where we have a very, very high quality of candidate. And what separates you is that you have no educational relevant experience. So our recommendations would be to you would be to go back and do another degree in a relevant field. So I was like, okay, well, I'm now almost 30. Why not? I'll do a degree. And so I did a second degree at the University of London in international relations and global politics. Had the time of my life, loved it. And it was a four-year degree. And it was every evening from 6 p.m. till 9 p.m. And so I thought, I've now got the ability to take on something part-time or something voluntary because I want to keep working during the degree. This is a bit of a long story, so bear with me. <laughs> so completely in, in uh, separate to that, I was invited to an event at the Getty Images Gallery where I used to work. And I bumped into a very good friend there whose husband had bought one of his friends. So completely unconnected, very serendipitous meeting. And we were chatting as a group. And he said, I've heard you've now left Getty. And what a shame. How come you left? And I said, oh, I've got this health condition that's very boring. And you've probably never heard of it. And he said, try me. And I said, I've got EDS. And he just looked at me and said, my daughter died of that when she was 19 years old. And you're the first person I've met with the condition. And I was just like, what? And she had the vascular type, which unfortunately does, does not have a long life expectancy it's it's got better but it's around 30 to 50 years old of, of, of what you could live to and of course often much much younger as was the case with his daughter and we just chatted all night and and I said you know what and I've just come back from a conference in the US an EDS conference that they put on and it was life-changing for me I walked into the room and i saw and met other people like me for the first time that that understood and were talking and saying things that I was like that could be me and it was life-changing and affirming and validating and I said I wish there was something like this in the UK and and I said I've made some initial calls and I found a very very small support group that's run out of a church hall in the country in the UK and I'm trying to see if I could put on a fundraiser for them or something and he said I've been trying to speak to them too I tell you what, why don't we go together? And I've got some money I would like to donate. So why don't you write on a list based on your experience when you went to the US conference and your experience as a patient, what you would want from a charity in this country? And that's exactly what I did. I got a pen and I got a piece of paper and I wrote everything from the minutiae to the massive. I put conferences, Facebook page, hoodies, pens, a support line, this, that, I mean, everything that I could think of that I really wanted when I got diagnosed, I didn't, couldn't find. And so we sat in this freezing cold church hall in Aldershot in the UK. And in my the usual way, with lots of hands flapping around, I said, and you should do this and you should do that and you should do this and put on a conference and it was amazing and da-da-da-da. And at the end of it, he said, 
I've decided what I'm going to do. I'm going to donate your salary for the length of your degree and you can work part time. And I'd like you to try and help do what was on that piece of paper. And I said, excuse me? No, 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 no. I've been a photographer and I want to be a spy. At no point in that plan was working for a nonprofit or a charity. I have no idea what I'm doing. He said, yes, but that's okay because you know what you need. And that's better than anything. And I said, okay, but I really want this career change. So I will give you those four years maximum. Well, 11 years later, here I am. And I helped to make what was then the Airless Downless Support Group into EDS UK, one of the largest EDS charities in the world. When I left, you know, when I started, I was working at the end of my bed. And when I left, we had an office of seven people in the UK. And in 2015, now, and I had finished my degree and I had realized that there was just too much to do. I couldn't leave. And there was also a real sense of satisfaction on the political side of things and the international relations side of things because collaboration was everything and you had to lobby and you you know i've ended up at the capital in the us and the houses of parliament in the uk and the in the eu and brussels and because these policies need to change it needs to have systemic change and so the political geek in me was on fire and loving it and realizing that i could satisfy that want and and need from my career in this very fulfilling way and hey, it makes a really good cover story if I am really a spy now, which my wife still thinks could be the case. She's, she still questions whether maybe in fact I am <laughs> I am a spy and this is just the ultimate cover story. So yeah, I mean, here I am in 2015. I realized that to go far, you have to go together. And the only way that this was going to change, like the national organizations were doing incredible things, but it was almost putting a plaster over a gaping wound. And we had to heal it. We had to stitch it together and it had to heal. And I really thought that the only way to do that was to do a global organization. And so I approached the US team that I went to that very first conference where I first was inspired to do this. And I said, how do you feel about setting up a global organization? And they said, oh, my God, really? We've been thinking the same. We got some doctors on board. And in 2015, I left and we set up what is the Ellis Daniel Society. And it's been a dream ever since. It's it, it's fostered relationships. It's broken down silos. We've brought together global communities, both health professionals, patients, and you know everything in between. We've funded millions of dollars in research. We've launched launched a global registry. We're doing pioneering studies to try and find answers. We've set up great educational platforms. It's it's. It's in abundance and it's happening so fast. You know, when we started just seven years ago, there were two of us and there's now 25 of us all around the world. This growing team that is inspiring and a joy to work with. And it really is this collaborative force that that really does drive progression. The interesting thing is that so much of healthcare would benefit with from this kind of energy and this kind of innovation, you're doing it for a rare condition. Have you thought whether this could scale so that some of the issues in healthcare could be addressed much more positively than they are at the moment? I mean, we have a fractured, siloed healthcare system, no matter which country you happen to be living in. What's your take on that? I totally agree. I think that the the, the silos and the fragmentation is what is 
holding everything back from moving forward. And I think it's a mixed bag. I think the other big issue that's that's really working against rare diseases and chronic diseases is that most healthcare systems are set up for the acute and not the chronic, the quick, the fast, the easy. It's the, the, the people that are dying, you know, the, the things where this is the problem, this is what can or cannot be done to solve it. And everything that's sticky and gray and long-term and chronic and hard and is just, is just neglected. And, and there's very legitimate reasons why, you know, I, I'm less angry with the systems than I am feeling sorry for them because I see the limitations. It's funding, it's budget, it's legislation, it's, it's, it's political. It's, it, it's so damn hard to care for people with long-term rare conditions that the, the networks aren't there. When you, so for example, when you get diagnosed, my opinion is when you get diagnosed with anything long-term rare or not, you should be offered a long-term physical care therapeutic pathway and a psychological one, mental health. Because it, imagine you're told that you're diagnosed with something that's going to be there for life. There's no cure. There's no treatment. How is anyone meant to be able to deal with that mentally? But yet you're expected that you just should be, de- be dealing with that. But the issue with that is not just reluctance from the healthcare professionals to diagnose or, or to, to offer that as a solution. But there's actually reluctance from the patients to accept it. Because if you imagine for years they've been told it's in their head, to then get a diagnosis and be told that you, they should then see someone to help them with their mental health, it's this defense mechanism of, it's not in my head, this is a real condition. Why are you telling me I need to see someone for my mental health? So that education needs to change systemically in both the patient community and the healthcare professional community. And I think that we've seen, we've lived through two years of a global pandemic. Look how much was achieved when the world came together to work on vaccines. It's evident right there that when you break down those silos, so much more can be done quicker. And we've seen that with covid We've seen that in the EDS, and I'm so proud that we're we're showing leading by example with that collaboration. And I was actually very very privileged that in March 2020, you know, height of the pandemic, I was supposed to be going to to the USA to actually be appointed a professor of practice in patient engagement and global collaboration at Penn State College of Medicine, and that was marking a decade in the field. And that was wonderful because it was finally acknowledged the importance of those two things. And I think not just the importance of that global collaboration, but the importance of it being driven by a patient. Because if you don't have the patient voice from bench to bedside in every aspect as an equal stakeholder, you're missing the narrative and the purpose of the why. And I think that's the other problem in healthcare in lots of different areas, that you don't have that that community, that person voice. And I'm always reluctant to use patient because we're so much more than a patient. We're human, we're people, we're, you're only a patient when you're in front of the doctor. And actually the experience you need to bring forward and needs to be represented is the whole holistic experience, not just when you walk into a doctor's room. So that, that community person experience, whether it be a caregiver, a sibling, a parent, a partner, person living with the experience impacted voice needs to be around that table from the very very conceptual stages and I think that too along with breaking down those silos is the key forward to really making change. 
And there's another aspect that still bothers me, and that's what was your experience and has been the experience of so many patients. And I'm particularly dismayed that this is an issue in primary care because traditionally, and when I was trained, this was from birth to death, 24 hours a day, there's a long-term relationship. And the value of that relationship was that you notice things which somebody else may not have noticed because they don't know the history and they haven't been there. They haven't walked with you. To hear that this has happened and that the person didn't have the time or the resource is a major issue, I think, that perhaps needs to be added to your list. At the end of the day, every rare disease patient will tell you that the first person that they saw was their family doctor. How do we make sure that we don't fail in the way that you're describing? Well, I assure you it is on the list, definitely, because I I hear you. I mean, absolutely. And it's on the list of of most Red Seas organizations fighting for this. I think everyone understands it starts with your GP, your family practitioner. But we're fighting against, again, systemic issues that are there that are almost bigger than us. So 2018, 2019, there was a lot of progression for rare diseases. In the UK alone, there was a lot of ground level lobbying work that was taking place in healthcare systems that were changing how uh, the pathways for rare diseases, the, the support that would be given to specialist clinics, centers of excellence, and then COVID hit. And it's like we've gone even further back than we, ha- than we were when we made that progression. And again, that's the case everywhere. Doctors do not have the time to think rare, to think outside the box, to think about the family history, the the patient history. They barely have time to stop the bleeding, you know, that's in front. So it we are in a really tough spot for that to be fulfilled. I think all that we can keep doing is providing platforms and resources that help the doctors who are willing to perhaps take a pause and think about what those hoofbeats could be other than a horse, to think about the full picture in front of them. We're really proud to have actually been the first rare disease project ECHO. And I'm not sure if you've heard of that. That is a wonderful pioneering tele telementoring platform, which was started in New Mexico by uh, Professor Aurora in Hepatitis C. And he, you know, he he realized he's not a hepatitis C specialist. He was a gastroenterologist, but he had, through years of educating himself and seeing many patients, had become a hepatitis C expert in the eyes of the patient community. And that's the same with EDS. There's no such thing as an EDS expert. It's a neurologist, a gastroenterologist, a geneticist, a rheumatologist that's taken the time to become an expert in that area. And he found that patients were traveling all across the country and the state to see him, becoming much worse from the traveling time, and then going back into their local area, almost like a wilderness, without being able to get the care that they need. And so he developed a system where it was move the knowledge, not the patient. And so he would encourage local experts to dial in, and it's almost like a virtual grand rounds where they were presenting de-identified case studies. and. He would then advise how they would treat the patient, where they are local to them. So the patient didn't have to go anywhere. And we heard about this and we just thought, this is beautiful. Like, how perfect is this for EDS, but more importantly, for rare diseases? And so 
we became the first rare disease echo and EDS echo has been running now since April 2019. We set ourselves the bold um, ambition that by the end of 2021, we would have mentored a thousand new healthcare professionals and we did it. We met our target. It's expanded massively. So we've got, we've actually got EDS echo in Australia, the UK, Europe, America, in nurses, vascular, general EDS, uh, it, you name it, we're, we're mentoring in it. And that's what we have chosen as our way to really try and educate out. And we would love to do something that's focused just on primary care. And we've thought about that. Medical students, you know, that's that's the future of the doctors that are, that are caring for, for our communities. So I work in broadly in rare diseases. I, you know, this is an area that I have become an expert in and I am encouraging rare disease communities wherever I can to adapt and adopt Project ECHO for their disease space because it is incredible and it's free. You know, Project ECHO is a non-profit and the resources and support they offer is just extraordinary. So I definitely would recommend people look into that because either to take part in one, because there's many, you you name it for any disease out there and there's more rare diseases now, we kind of led the way with that. It's out there and it's a wonderful way to learn more uh, you can have CME kind of extra credited uh, credits going towards your time as well, and on the whole, it's free for people to take to, to take part in. Some some charge to cover cost, but ninety nine percent are all free to to take part in. So it's amazing. It is amazing, and the other amazing thing is how patients are changing healthcare. Healthcare is evolving. We love to amplify your voice. What you're doing is really, really important. I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future. And thank you so much for taking the time this evening. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the journal of healthdesign.com.